Welcome to the Bulwark Podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. It's October 7th, 2020, which, uh, of course, is kind of a milestone of sorts because four years ago today, October 7th, 2016, you remember that? The Access Hollywood tapes were dropped. Our guest today is Josh Kroshauer from the National Journal. Josh, I bet you can remember where you were when you heard about that. I was actually at a baseball playoff game and uh, actually leaving in the parking lot and scrolling, uh, watching the video, scrolling Twitter. It was it was quite a moment. Uh, the Nationals lost game five to the Dodgers that year. And then Trump's campaign seemingly imploded before he he resurrected himself just a month later. Yeah, it just I mean, th- that was really the pivotal day for, for a lot of for a lot of different reasons. So I remember I was thinking about that because uh, I know that the Trump campaign has had to sort of a pin in today saying, well, remember how bad things looked on October 7th and we survived. We came back so you can be really down in the dumps. But after October 7th, you can still turn things around. I, I'm not sure that's the case uh, this time around. I, I think the mood of the electorate is kind of, I said this yesterday on the podcast, moving from exhaustion to disgust. We can get to that in a moment. But I remember where I was. Um, honestly, I was asleep. I was napping and my phone rings and it's somebody from NBC saying, so uh, do you think that this uh, this new tape is going to make a difference with with the Trump voters? And I had no idea what it was. My initial reaction before I'd completely woken up and it was described to me was, no, probably not. But then when I woke up and, you know, splashed some water on my face, I thought, oh, crap, how do you recover from this? And of course, that was the day that that Reince Priebus is, uh, you know, madly trying to get the president to uh, pull out of the race. I mean, think about that, that there was a big push to get him to withdraw from the presidential race that he won a month later. I mean, that's kind of amazing. Um, I, I also remember uh, that this little interesting detail, I think, was for, for me, he was supposed to come to Wisconsin for this big rally uh, with Paul Ryan the next day, the Saturday this, that took place on a Friday. And I remember tweeting to Ryan's Priebus, like, you're not going to let him come and like drop a bomb on the entire Wisconsin Republican Party, are you? And, and Frank wrote something back. I, I'm in tears here. I'm the good guy here. I'm, I'm trying to fix this. But I guess that that's, that's the question before we get into all of this. Um, that's the famous day where everybody thought he was dead. Uh, people were backing away. But ultimately, the Republican Party decided to rally around him. And we know the rest of the story. But I just, Josh, I mean, I, on October 7th this year, I just don't feel that that happening. I think the signs of collapse are all around. So that's why I wanted to reach out to you because you, you have this sober take on things. What, 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 what is your, what are you feeling? Well, you know, let's go back to 2016 because that was a, a seminal moment. And, and it was a reminder that at that point in time, the campaign was, was very fluid and the polling was moving all over the place. So if I remember correctly, Trump was actually before the Access Hollywood tape within striking distance of, of Hillary Clinton. It, it was competitive enough, especially in some of the battleground states. And I, I had the same reaction as you, Charlie. I, I, I really, I thought the fact that his campaign was so politically incorrect all along, I, you know, I, I wasn't sure if it was going to move the needle. And then I talked the next day to Republican campaign strategists, pollsters, and they saw the numbers, you know, fall, fall out the, and, and collapse for a few days. That's what led to this Republican yeah. panic across the country. But, but then Trump 
turn things around. And, and that was sort of the story of that entire general election. There were ups and downs, or it was a roller coaster ride, where there were times when Trump fell behind by, by a sizable margin, but he was able to, to quickly recover. And, and Hillary Clinton was so disliked that there were people that just did not want to vote for her, no matter what they thought about Donald Trump. Right now, you know, I, I think we're in the fat Elvis stage of the Trump presidency. I mean, he's just letting loose the the optics on Monday. Was it Monday? I don't even remember what the other week it was. But when he was at the White House coming back from Walter Reed Hospital, erratic, uh, still sick, taking off the mask. I mean, Trump was in 2016 sort of the seminal reality show player, the reality show host who kind of took that that dynamic into politics. Watching what happened on Monday, it was more like looking at how the sausage gets made in a reality show. You know, you weren't, yeah. you weren't seeing a well-produced, uh, you know, Trump. You were seeing Trump trying to show strength, trying to say something that, that kind of went against the reality of the moment. And people can tell when, when, when it's not a well-produced reality show. People know when the villain kind of ends up self-immolating on their own terms. And I, I think that's where we are right now with less than a month to go until, until the election. Uh, you know, this is season four of, of Trump Trump's presidency. And the, the show is getting stale. The, 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 lead, the lead actor is getting a little more desperate. And you just look at every poll, Charlie. I mean, you don't, you don't need to be a, mm-hmm. you know, a season pollster to look at the state of the race. You know, two, two very top, top poll, pollsters, CNN, NBC, Wall Street Journal, show Trump down 14, 16 points. The, the number that I, I just point to, and I think it, it's it's a lot of common sense to understand these numbers, seniors. It's Donald Trump won seniors by seven points. That, that The seniors were part of his base in 2016. Every poll, and in those two national polls I mentioned, both show him losing seniors by over 20 points. That is, you can't recover from that type of deficit. And it's it's because he's just shown no seriousness in handling the most important issue of the day right now for, no. for America. And, 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 it, and I think he, he's made it worse. Uh, I, I, I just sense an, under, an undertow, a really angry response to some of the things that he said about the coronavirus uh, over the last couple of days. So we've gone from the exhaustion to, you know, I'm, I'm really sick of this guy. Uh, Tim Alberta makes a couple of great points. He said, you know, Trump fatigue is peaking at the wrong time for Trump. But then he also, you you mentioned the senior citizens. He talks about the what you're seeing with the gender gap. He said, what we're seeing now in polling conducted by both parties is not a wave. It isn't even a tsunami. It's something we don't have a name for because we've never seen anything like it. So, I mean, look, I, I'm just seeing all of these signs of collapse, whether you want to talk about, you know, the specifics is the pandemic is sweeping through the White House. You even got Stephen Miller. You have members of the Joint Chief of Staff who are isolating. Uh, you have the president on this mad tweet storm, which I, I, I was mentioning to Jim Swift before we started this, that I want to stay away from the the sort of the armchair medical pharmaceutical analysis of steroids, but I mean, gee, crap. A few minutes ago, he had his 94th tweet or retweet within the past 15 hours, and they are way more deranged than than usual. So this morning's Washington Post has has an item, Republican group working to elect Senate Republicans, was polling in Colorado, Georgia, Montana, and North Carolina, just as Trump was hospitalized. They say the president's numbers dropped significantly in every state, falling by about five points in all of them. The president's in real trouble. So, I mean, 
this, this is, this is a moment here. I mean, it's, it is, it, it does feel like it's in free fall, but we've seen stuff before. Okay. Before we get into all, I mean, I don't know. We want to start with the, well, yeah, the, yeah, the, the, the deranged tweets or what? I'm look, I, you, you mentioned like, is this a way if a tsunami or how do you yeah. describe the political environment? You know, yeah. I, I think before the debate, the debate was sort of a seminal moment. I also think what we talked about a couple of weeks ago in, in Trump refusing to accept the re- election results was also self self-destructive. And I think that was the beginning of, of this slide. But the debate was a, certainly a seminal moment. Um, and my big question looking at all the data before the debate was, is this just going to be a democratic wave where Biden wins by a decent, but, but, but not overwhelming margin. And and maybe Republicans have a chance to hold the Senate versus a tsunami, which we were seeing earlier in the summer where where, where everything on the Republican ticket gets wiped out, maybe even in States like South Carolina and Texas. I I was more towards the, this is sort of two, eight, 2018 all over again, more of a midterm result where Republicans hold the base, hold mm-hmm. some of the Trump voters from 2016. But, you know, you, you end up losing the presidency and, and it's evenly divided Washington. Uh, the, the the combination of events, just, just think about the last week and a half. It's, you know, two weeks ago, you had Trump, the news about Trump avoiding taxes, only paying $750 a few years ago. You had the disastrous debate where even about a third of Republicans in, in the CNN poll said that they thought Biden won or they thought either Biden won the debate or no one won the debate, which is a pretty telling sign in these in these partisan times. You have this, the, 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 the craziness over his diagnosis of coronavirus and his recklessness and how he's handling it. I mean, that is is just uh, extinction level <laughs> political stuff. And then you have the stimulus, you know, the debate over the stimulus, which is just, you know, he at least got a chance to maybe get some you know, people who are suffering economically to, to get them back in his fold by trying to get some bipartisan deal. And that, that's looking as uncertain as ever. Uh, and he's trying to, and he, he certainly took responsibility for scuttling what was going on. Well, okay. that was, there's two things there. Number one, he scuttled something that was clearly in his political interest to get done. And then number two, he did it in such a way that he would be blamed for it, that he himself did it. He didn't, he didn't say that, you know, Nancy Pelosi scuttled it or, you know, that, you know Chuck Schumer scuttled it. He took responsibility. It seemed like through the night that he realized he'd made a mistake. That that as he and, and so he starts this 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 insane Twitter negotiation with himself. Okay, well, if you give me you know a bill that would you know send out twelve hundred dollars to everybody, I would sign that. Well, I would do I would do all of this, but you know, okay. So I'm I'm really trying to figure this out. Well, you know, this is a running theme of yeah. a lot of my columns, which is that the, the Trump campaign, they're not playing three-dimensional chess. The, the notion that they, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, the notion that they're going to steal the election and, 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 and even if they lose, they're not, they're not competent enough to do that. They're not competent enough to figure out how to help Trump politically to get through this stimulus and try to get something passed to help himself for, for the reelect. And I think what you're going to see in the final weeks of the campaign, and this is really worrisome for down ballot Republicans, you know, the Republican Mitch McConnell wanted to basically isolate COVID from the other issues that are a little more advantageous for Republicans, whether it's law and order earlier in this campaign and and more recently, the Supreme Court uh, confirmation hearing for Amy Coney Barrett. But what's actually going to be happening in every event that goes forward is you're not going to be able to disconnect coronavirus and the administration's handling of coronavirus from any other issue because it, it, is, it is connected to everything. You know, when Coney Barrett, if she, if she does go ahead, they could do go ahead with the hearing on time. You know, all of the coverage will be about how her uh, announcement event is going oh, is now seen as a super spreader yeah. event 
that that's taken the whole White House staff out of commission. The, the or, Rose or, Garden or, Massacre. I mean, yeah. and, 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 and you look, the debate, the VP debate that, that's taking place, uh, you're going to have these dividers, these plexiglass dividers that are going to remind viewers that even if Mike Pence makes the most effective case for all the Trump policies, for, for traditional Republican policies, you're going to look at that visual with those plexiglass uh, you know, separators between Harris and Pence, and you're going to be reminded that that we are in a crisis created by the president's own recklessness. Yeah, let so me there's no way. I mean, the, the the Republican strategy a week or two ago was let's just ignore coronavirus, let's fight on issues that are more favorable to to us. That's impossible. It is absolutely impossible. It's all because of Trump's recklessness. Yeah. Let me just interrupt ourselves here that uh, Donald Trump's going to hate the debate tonight because afterwards, just watch the Republicans pivot to, to saying, Mike Pence did so much a better job than the president did. Boy, wouldn't it be great if we had Mike Pence around? <laughs> so it's gonna, it's gonna, Because you know he's going to be better. But you're right. It is that down ballot thing. And, and uh, in Wisconsin, um, it's it's you know we have just been hammered uh, now by the, the coronavirus. And what's interesting is that the Republican Party, the legislative Republican Party, has been all in in opposing any of these mitigation efforts. Uh, you go to court to try to have everything the governor has done thrown out. And there's a very strong editorial in the local paper, not that editorials matter that much, but really calling out the Republicans who don't even pretend to have a policy. And I think they had been very confident that, uh, you know, they were OK on all of this up until up until now. But now. Wisconsin is one of the worst states, particularly up in the Green Bay area and everything. And you do wonder whether there's going to be a trickle down. Now, I, Republicans will control the legislature afterwards, but um, this is not going to be helping Republicans here at all. So on this stimulus, the w one thing that seemed the easiest play for Trump, who doesn't care about debt, who doesn't care about spending, right? He's not from that wing of the party, would be to basically say, yeah, we're just going to throw trillions at this and I'm going to sign the checks and, you know, I'll, I'll have a Rose Garden ceremony that there'll be no Democrats at. And he, he throws it away. So that's amazing in and of itself. But in my newsletter today, Josh, I, I, I tried a little thought experiment. And just to put this in perspective. So imagine on Earth 2.0, where I, I frequently spend time in my head, and imagine that Donald Trump is a rational human being and a, and a rational politician. He has this opportunity on Monday. Not what happened, but what could have happened. Imagine he returns from the hospital a chastened man. He orders his staff and everybody else to take the strictest precautions to protect you know, themselves and, and others. And then he, then he sends this message to the country that, you know, I am deeply humbled. I understand your fears and frustrations. You know, I've been so lucky. I know, you know, a lot of you haven't been, but my experience has taught me that none of us are safe. None of us are immune. You know, not all of you can get the kind of outstanding health care I got. And I'm going to make sure in my second term that it's available to all of you. And we, we can get through this, but I realize that we are in this together. And as a result of that, because we're in this together, my first act is going to endorse another stimulus package that's going to help tens of millions of people keep, you know, keep afloat. And, you know, that might have actually worked for him, a little bit of empathy, a little bit of, hey, I get it now. But, you know, you're probably rolling your eyes because it was not going to happen. You know, it's he's Donald Trump. I mean, that would require empathy, willingness to admit you made a mistake, probably, you know, a little vulnerability. So impossible, right? Yeah. I mean, 
There were some signs of that on Sunday when the president recorded right. from the hospital that video where he did seem a little more, right. uh, a little tad bit of empathy. And he said the line where, you know, you don't learn these things by the book, but you learn them through experience. Yeah. And he's going to go back and, and tell everyone, uh, tell the American people what he learned. There, there were some, I mean, in fact, there were some, 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 uh, you know, prominent strategists who posted on Twitter that maybe that we were going to see this new version (laughs) of the president and American loves, I mean, even with Trump, American loves nothing more than a redemption story. Mm -hmm. So if he did what you said, Charlie, and if he read the lines and stuck to the teleprompter and that was the the message, you know, yeah. I mean, I I don't think it would have dramatically changed the race, but he could have gotten out of the hole that he dug himself, but instead he's digging a deeper hole and, 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 you mentioned the stimulus as well. I mean, there's just no political logic. The one political talent that Donald Trump has is his ability to get Republicans to do what he says on Twitter. And so he could have, if he wanted a deal, if he wanted to get something done, he all he would have to do is send a couple tweets saying, cut a deal. This is what I want. Okay, is that true, though? Is, is that true? Because it looked like he was doing that last week. And, there, you know, is it possible that Mitch McConnell just said, hey, Republicans are just not going to spend a lot of money? You know, we have enough bandwidth to handle the Supreme Court, but uh, don't don't make us spend this money. And, and Donald Trump caved in. No, it's even in McConnell. McConnell is a little wary of, of the degree of spending, but it's also in McConnell's interest for these red state senators that are up and in tough races. They, they you know, Mar- Susan Collins is a good example. Uh, her high point during the campaign was when she ran ads and talked about how she got uh, the Paycheck Protection Act to, to small businesses, and her numbers spiked for a little bit right after that that moment. So McConnell knows that in a lot of these races, helping that your average voter, including a lot of Trump voters, with with uh, the, the economic stimulus to get by during these tough times would have been politically helpful. I don't think he wanted a three trillion, whatever was the number that was originally being being tossed out there. But I think McConnell would have certainly embraced a, a smaller deal and one that Trump could have helped him get. But Trump just scuttled everything with, with uh, or at least for the time being, by putting that tweet out uh, yesterday. And again, it's not not only is it not in his political interest because he could use an economic stimulus before the election, but it's also he's also put his fingerprints all over blowing up the deal. And, and keep in mind, Democrats had a lot of internal divisions within their own party because there are a lot of moderate Democrats up for re-election in the House that don't want Pelosi to, to go ahead empty-handed. They they actually want a deal to be struck, even if it's not on the most advantageous terms. So Sam Stein tweeted out afterwards, Trump's closing argument of more COVID, less stimulus seems a bit of a gamble. And that's, this, this seems to be where he's at right now. You know, you American, you need to take a punch. We need to get back in there. You, have, you know, people will die, but blah, 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 blah. And then the no stimulus. It, it still, so we kind of have to go there because even Republicans are, are scratching their heads about why he did this. Um you know, some of the advisors, you know, are, are saying this feels like a punch in the face to all of them. So is is the how would we know if the president is seriously unwell? <laughs> Just that's well, the problem here. I'm 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 actually talking about the, you know, the, all the drugs he's taking. I mean, there's something manic about all of this. Is it affecting his decision making or is it just freaking Donald Trump? Well, look, this is who he is. I mean, I, I, I would never hazard a, a medical diagnosis of Donald Trump. And honestly, the tweets that I mean, what's what's kind of made us so inured to all the stuff that's gone on is that this is Trump in normal times. I mean, there are moments where Trump tweets crazy stuff in all caps and we just ignore it a lot of the time because that's who he is. That's what he does. We've t- kind of priced that into to the political life in the last four years. So, you know, 
I, I mean, am I concerned a little bit that he left the hospital potentially, you know, against where the doctors originally wanted him to be for a week uh, and, and, and uh, is tweeting up a storm? Sure. I mean, it doesn't seem like he's making smart decisions for his health or for his political future. But again, that's been the story throughout the Trump campaign throughout the Trump presidency. I mean, he wouldn't have had made the comments about Charlottesville if he was savvier politically. He wouldn't have, you know, had that debate moment praising the Proud Boys, uh, or at least not, not 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 criticizing the Proud Boys at the debate. That that was his choice. That's who he is. And I, I just, you know, there, there's less than a month left until the election. I think, like I said at the outset, season four is, is, is ending. The ratings are low. He's trying to stir up some drama, but um, the, the politics are where they are, and he's he's decided underdog uh, for for this uh, second term. Yeah, as an indication of how bad things are for Republicans, I think it was the Cook report that uh, that moved South Carolina Lindsey Graham's seat to a toss up. Which yeah, uh, I mean, three months in, ago uh, we would you would we would have laughed if somebody said yeah, your Democrat might win in South Carolina beating Lindsey Graham. Yeah, Lindsey Graham, but it's not just South Carolina, Charlie. It's Alaska. It's Texas. There's a poll out of Texas that shows John Cornyn only up by a point. Um, and, and, and Hager, who, who is his opponent, who hasn't gotten a lot of attention, uh, is raised a ton of money in the last quarter and is probably going to be b- the beneficiary of a lot of money in the final month. Uh, you know, the, the map is expanding at the worst possible time. Uh, you don't want the, the president standing to collapse at, at, at a time when people are voting and people are paying attention. Uh, so yeah, I mean, South Carolina, Texas, Kansas, you know, those states, I I still think Graham hangs on in South Carolina. I think there's been, I I wouldn't, I don't know if I'd have moved it to, to toss up territory, but these are states where Republicans are pouring in millions and millions of dollars to save senators or Senate candidates that should be in safe condition. The scary part about this is, you know, that Donald Trump doesn't go quietly into this, that he will do everything possible, uh, throw everything up against the wall. Uh, last night, as part of this uh, deranged tweet storm, he said that he had uh, declassified every document involving Obamagate, Clintongate, whatever the hell you call it, about the investigation, including all the redactions. Not not exactly clear what that actually means. I don't think it's going to make much difference, except to, I mean, it's going to excite the journal. I mean, the the Wall Street Journal editorial page and uh, Molly Hemingway and the folks at the Federalist, but it's not going to move that much. But it, it does raise the question: What else is he capable of doing? I don't know what he's able to do at this point that would substantially change the dynamics because it does feel like the bottom is falling out, and th- for some reason, I, I, I back up, you know. Clearly, the this coronavirus you know, hospitalization has been has has hit a, a nerve, and you can just feel. And I'm, I know I'm repeating myself, but you can feel that people are, are reacting viscerally and angrily. And why is this different than any other? Because this is this is something that ninety percent of the electorate is talking about, as opposed to Russia Gate, which was which was what thirty percent, forty percent. We often overestimate how many average people pay attention yeah. to politics, even all to the time. Donald Trump, and I think that debate was so disastrous, Charlie, because seventy-five million people or so were watching. That that that's, I mean, Kate, what what does the Fox get or CNN get on an average night? You know, maybe a three million on, right, on a good right. night, four million at most. Um, that that seventy-five million of people, many of whom don't pay attention to politics, tune out all the craziness. They were seeing in real time what Donald Trump is like behind the scenes at his most authentic. And that moved the numbers. That 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 scared even a lot of people who may have been planning to vote for him 
in the election. And I think Republicans often, the biggest mistake by Republicans, down-ballot Republicans, is that they, they conflate the, the Trump sympathizers with the Trump diehards. And, and we do this in the media, too. I mean, I, yeah. I think that's one of the biggest mistakes by a lot of analysts and commentators, that we assume everyone who's voting for Trump likes his style, likes his temperament, even agrees with him on all, on all, all, all his policies. There, there's maybe about 20% of the country that, that are Trump, Trump diehards, but even the people that are voting with him in most circumstances are, are not they're not people that, that don't acknowledge his weaknesses, his flaws. They may they they, they hate they hate the Democrats. They, they they're polarized along negative lines against the the liberal wing of the Democratic Party. But these are not people who are just cult members of of, of the Trump Party. Right. And I think Republicans across the board have miscalculated that you know they need to be with Trump and, and and sing his praises, say how amazing he is at every step of the way, instead of just saying I you know I agree with him on this and this, but I don't agree with you know I, I think he's gone a little too far in, in this case. And, you know, that's what's going to kill Republicans uh, down ballot because they, they basically, for the most part, every Republican uh, official tied themselves so closely to the president. There's no room. There's no space for them to get a little wiggle, wiggle room with no time left until November's election. This is such an important point, Josh, because I I, I, I have really wondered why they, they don't keep a little bit of arms length, why they do feel that they need to, uh, you, you know, suck up to him and. Uh, you know, lavish him with praise. There is a point at which you go, okay, you can support the policies you support, but you don't have to sacrifice all of your self-respect. You don't have to turn yourself into Marsha Blackburn. You don't have to do to yourself what Kelly Loeffler has done to herself in Georgia, which is absolutely humiliating. You don't need to become Lindsey Graham. Um, you can say, I agree with you on this. I disagree with you on this. Um, we've never seen this before. I remember Republicans were able to break, you know, d- criticize George W. Bush all the time. They didn't feel the need to support every single thing he did. Um, they were able to be critical of Ronald Reagan at times. There's never been a cult of personality like this. So, I mean, it's it's that it's not just this. It, well, it it is the sacrifice of any personal dignity. But as you as you point out, there's no room between for them to separate themselves down ballot. However, here's this story from the Daily Beast, which I'm sure you saw. Um, where they are reporting that GOP donors and party leaders are cutting bait on Trump and focusing resources on saving the Senate. There is no discussion among donors about giving money to the president, said one GOP donor. This is sometimes known as the 1996 strategy, where um, when Bob Dole knew he was going down uh, because he actually cared about his country and his party, he he, uh, allowed them to focus on keeping the Senate because they knew that he was going to lose. So do you think that that's happening? But see, this is the problem, Charlie. What makes that harder is that so many of these Republicans have tied themselves so tightly to Trump in the past. You can't change the storyline with with, with people already voting. Uh, You know, one example just last night uh, is that Arizona Senate race with Martha McSally and Mark Kelly. So McSally's in a swing state with a lot of McCain Republicans, you know, moderates who don't like Trump, but but almost always vote Republican. She lost a big chunk of them when she was on the ballot two years ago. For some odd reason, she decided to just play to the base. You know, that stunt she did with Manu Raju, you know, on CNN, um, you're, you know, just trying to just pander to the far right of the party. And then at the biggest moment, her first debate last night, she was asked whether she was proud of her support of, of Donald Trump. And she would not answer the question. What are you doing? Well, right? well, I mean, and then she was asked again. And she she would refuse to answer the question. So the whole political strategy up to now was 
you know, I love Trump. I'm going to hug him. I, there's no, no no daylight between uh, me, you know, between between him. I actually, after, during the convention, I, she was on uh, one of the radio shows I host, and uh, she, I asked her that point point blank whether she wanted President Trump in Arizona, and she said, of course, like uh, you know, she embraced him a hundred percent. Now she couldn't even say at a, at a state televised debate whether she was proud of that support. That is, you know, you're, 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 that is just makes no political sense. If you're going to go with Trump, stick with him. If you're going to be supportive of policies, but actually create a little bit of independence, that's the brand you want as a Republican in Arizona. And, and I, you know, I wrote a column today also about this guy, Jeff Van Drew, who was a Democrat in a slightly Trump-leaning district who decided to change parties during impeachment and become a Republican because he thought his district was going to be with Trump forever. These blue-collar voters, these these middle-class voters were, were becoming permanent Trump supporters. Well, now the district favors Joe Biden. And now he's in, in the fight of his life, probably going to lose uh, his re-election. And, and, he gave, and he would have won if he remained a Democrat in all likelihood, given, given where the, the political environment is today. I mean, these are, this, is, this isn't just like moral miscalculations. These are profound political miscalculations by Republicans. And it's all clouded by President Trump and his, his, his power of personality. Yeah, this is why the 1996 strategy won't work. I'm trying to come up with the analogy. It's sort of like what they've done is they've, uh, they've tied this uh, boat anchor around their waist uh, of, of Donald Trump. And now they're thinking they can jump out of the airplane. I mean, it's like, <laughs> it's like no, this is not going to work. You know, you, you mentioned Arizona and Arizona and, and Wisconsin have something in, a little bit in common. I, I'm sorry to keep bringing it back to Wisconsin, but I'm, of course, I'm obsessed with this is, is, you know, Arizona has a long tradition of maverick politicians. Barry Goldwater was, was really an ornery, cantankerous maverick who would, was willing to break with his party um, whenever he he disagreed with him. John McCain being the classic maverick. People admired that. In Wisconsin, we used to have people like Bill Proxmire. He was a Democrat, but he was, he was very, very unpredictable. And he was very independent. People liked that. They liked the independent. Ross Feingold, of course, very, you know, went, went, went down to defeat, but at least had that branding. And now you have people like, like my, my good friend, Ron Johnson, who sits in the seat that William Proxmire used to hold, and obviously Ross Feingold's. And rather than being a maverick or an independent, what they do is they fall all over themselves to be a loyalist. When there's a tremendous upside to basically saying, you know what? I am my own man. I am my own woman. I make up my own mind. You know, I'm going to agree with the president on some things and I'm going to disagree. That is not a that is not a dangerous position. It's not a wacky position. It's a position that actually has tremendous political resonance and long histories in places like Wisconsin and Arizona. It does, especially in a state like Arizona. I mean, I think sometimes you got to look at these states state by state. Yeah. But Arizona is one of the states with the most persuasive voters of any battleground in the country. So, you know, if you're going to run, if, if you're Martha McSally, you're gifted that Senate seat. She was appointed to the Senate after losing it in 2018. Yeah. And she lost, I think it was 12% of Republicans. 12% of Republicans didn't voted for her Democratic opponent. You, you've got to look at those numbers and say, I, I can't be the same hardcore Trumpist as I seemed at times in 2018. You've got to win over those persuadable voters or you're not going to have a chance to, to win the November general election. And, you know, maybe, you know, Kelly Leffler, I get what she's doing in Georgia because she's essentially in a primary of sorts mm -hmm. uh, where she's trying to win over the base against another Republican. So at least there's some political. I mean, I think she's going to hurt herself down the road, but at least there's some political strategy there. You know, in Arizona, you know, there's a reason Cindy McCain endorsed Joe Biden. There's a reason why you have a lot of I think Arizona may have more former Republicans backing Joe Biden than any other big state. 
And uh, it's because that's where the voters are. There, there are a lot of McCain Republicans that make up so much of that Maricopa County vote. And if you if you can't win them over, you're not going to win the state. So like Martha McSally from the get go decided she either was in such a weak position with her base that she had to do that and, and had to pander to Trump voters, which means she never should have been in the Senate seat in the first place. Or she basically, you know, by doing that, she eliminated much of a chance of winning or, or literally put her whole political destiny in the hands of Donald Trump, which is not a smart position to put yourself in. One of the remarkable things about our discussion and virtually everybody else's discussion about the, the state of the race right now is how little attention we pay to Joe Biden. <laughs> to a certain extent, Joe Biden is really is, I, I'm trying to think who said this, maybe it was Dave Wasserman, is really putting on a masterclass in how to let your your opponent destroy themselves. You know, don't don't, don't do anything that's going to get too much attention. But uh, two things: uh, he gave a speech yesterday. Joe Biden gave a speech yesterday in Gettysburg, which looked pretty awesome to me. I I I he's got good reviews. Uh, he had a town hall meeting on NBC, which is being attacked um, by the right rather aggressively, which tells me he did well there too. So he's actually. He's running a low-key campaign. He hasn't had any gaffes. And maybe this is like the dog that didn't bark, Josh, because, you know, if, if you and I were, were predicting what will we be talking about in mid-October, we'd be saying, well, how many gaffes did Joe Biden commit? Um, you know, was he stepping on himself? And he's not. And that speech yesterday, I thought was, um, it, you know, it, 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 it hit a note sort of the mood of the country that that I am the the I am fundamentally the anti-Trump, not just on policy, but just in every sort of value and character trait you can imagine. It was a calming speech. That's what I was trying to political divisiveness. I mean he started the, the, the beginning was basically talking about how he's gonna try to end this divisiveness and work with Republicans wow. in Washington. Good luck and, with that by uh, the way. Yeah, and I mean, look, and, and I, I tweeted out that, um, yeah, that to me that signaled he's not someone who's going to pursue court packing or even perhaps blowing up the legislative filibuster. If you're giving a speech a few weeks before the election where you're saying we need to work together, we can't we can't do things unilaterally. Right. We gotta we gotta work with the other side. Now, you know, maybe he breaks the promise, and maybe maybe that that that, that, that those are just words and not actions. But when you're literally giving a high profile speech in Gettysburg right before the election, you're you're setting a, 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 a marker. And, you know, everything in Biden's history suggests he's an institutionalist. You know, no matter how the, the Senate goes, it's probably still going to be pretty closely divided where, you know, getting uh, progressive accomplishments done is going to be impossible unless you have Republican uh, buy-in. So, you know, I, I think that this guy means what he says. He certainly has, uh, you know, shown in his actions that he's not going to pander to the progressives too much. And uh, that speech yesterday was sort of a clear signal. Like if, there's, if there's any, if there was any signal in this campaign, how he will govern, how he's going to approach uh, being president. It was that, that, that speech, which was in this sort of reassuring tone. And, and it was a total pay on to bipartisanship. Yeah, no, I, I think it was, he, 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 it's, he's displaying his decency. He's displaying his empathy. He's displaying his calmness at this moment. And to the extent that the Republicans' main hope at this point 
is that uh, is that voters might not like Trump, but they'll be terrified of the Democrats. The Democrats have actually done a pretty good job in not being scary. Now, the question is, can they not step on their you know what's when it comes to the Supreme Court nomination? Um, there's going to be tremendous pressure to go over the top and trying to block Amy Coney Barrett. So how is that going to play out? I'm, I'm having a hard time even imagining what it's going to look like and feel like uh, if they do it virtually, if it's the week before the election, um, do you anticipate? I anticipate that they will do anything to get her through. They will break any rule, any norm. They will do anything. So that's going to happen. Do you disagree? I think that's what the, that's certainly what Republicans want to do. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think that the politics have changed in the last couple of weeks, and not because of her credentials. I, I think she she is a brilliant, well qualified juror who mm-hmm. who would have perhaps helped a lot of Republicans in Senate races right. who are especially those like the Tom Tillis who, who was on the, who is on the judiciary committee. Uh, unfortunately, as I said earlier, the, the Supreme court fight has now been tied together with the COVID fight. And, you know, the fact that Republicans may try to push this through, there could be for few, I mean, maybe there are other senators that become ill with, with COVID and, and can't uh, participate in person on the, on the, on the committee if it looks like this is rushed, that, that Republicans are unwilling to listen to what people are saying in the country and they're literally trying to push it through to the point where you have six senators that aren't even able to be well, there. It is going to look like that. It will yeah. look like that. Yeah, no, I mean, the optics would look terrible. I mean, and that, that's I, I would have told you a month ago, or, you know, a month ago that I thought McConnell probably could have played this to a small win because the issue of the courts rally Republicans. She's what she she seems like an A-list candidate. I She seems very impressive. And, you know, I think that the, the tendency for Democrats to shoot themselves in the foot is, is, is always going to happen. So I thought Republicans could have at least scored a political win in some of those Senate races where the, the, the states are a little more conservative. Unfortunately, I, I just think this is all getting tied together with COVID. Right. And, and when people who don't follow the court battles, when they look at a hearing that's being held without Republicans and, and certain senators able to be there, I, I just think it, it, it adds to this narrative that they're just trying to force it through without a Demo- the, without the full democratic consideration that these processes usually should go through. Well, and I don't and, think that will help. Them. I don't and, think that will help. Them. And also, when you when you when you poll test the, the the question, what should the priority be? Should it be the coronavirus relief legislation or the Supreme Court? That's a that's an overwhelming. That's like a seventy percent uh, issue, right? So the Democrats would really have to screw up um, rather royally not not to be able to. Uh, pound that point uh, through. Okay, you mentioned Tom Tillis, who is uh, sits on the sits on the Judiciary Committee, one of the most vulnerable Republican senators. In fact, he certainly looked like you know in the top three of guys who you know should be thinking about their post employment um, fu- future. And yet, over the weekend, and this got lost in a lot of it, his Democratic opponent Cal Cunningham finds himself in a sex scandal of sorts, like some sort of sex that were out there and now his mistress is coming. So how does that play? Do people, do, it, it, you know, I'm old enough to remember when that kind of thing would derail a campaign, would derail a Senate campaign. 2020, what does it do? No, it's a known unknown. I, have no I, idea. I still think, it ha- I, I still think it, it, you're talking about a race where you have a Republican Senator who caught COVID at the Supreme court, uh, you know, ceremony. And, it was down, uh, was was struggling, underperforming Trump as recently as a week or two ago versus a Democrat who, um, you know, is now in the middle of an of a ugly sex scandal. Uh, the, the problem for Cunningham is the Democrats, 
basically kept a lot of their recruits underground for much of the cycle, especially during the pandemic. So they were basically raising money throughout all of 2019. And then when the pandemic hit, they realized they didn't need to have, you know, in-person events and they could, you know, not have to deal with the press as much as they normally would do. So you have these Democrats in a lot of these key races, not all of them, but some of them that are sort of these generic Democrats, Cal Cunningham, it looks good, has a military background, but it doesn't have much of a political uh, history. You know, Teresa Greenfield in, in Iowa, someone who couldn't even make it onto a House ballot two years ago, is now the, the face of the franchise in Iowa. Um, so look, when you have a, when you, when you don't know a whole lot about these candidates other than the, that they're a Democrat, they're the opposition, and all of a sudden you add information that, are, that, that, that that's at the top of the newspapers saying that you're <laughs> a guy who ran on his character is all of a sudden in the middle of an ugly sex scandal and there's maybe more to come. I mean, I think it does move the needle. I think it does uh, hurt Cunningham in, in a very, very important Senate race for Democrats. I, I think this one is going to go down to the wire. I mean, I think Trump probably loses North Carolina by really? a smaller margin. Really? The question is, and I, I would have said a week ago, or a week or two ago, you know, if Trump loses North Carolina, it's really hard for Tillis yeah. to win that race. Mm-hmm. What this does is it gives Tillis a chance to win enough voters, conservative minded voters who don't like Trump, but would hold their nose because they think Cunningham is a total sleaze. Yeah, it's 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 so it's so unpredictable. I mean, it's sort of an old fashioned sex scandal. It's not like about it's not about rape or you know it's th- those sorts of things. But but we'll we'll find out. I, I don't I don't know North Carolina as well as I ought to, or or whether it well, John, affect, John Edwards. I mean, yeah, but whether North it affected, Carolina. Well, but and, whether it would affect a Democrat as much as it affects a Republican, if you get where I'm going there. I mean, I. I yeah. don't know. So, okay, I'm, I'm, I'm seeing on Twitter right now that uh, Carly Fiorina went on Fox and endorsed Joe Biden. She's done that before, though, right? Yeah, or, or I, believe, I, didn't, I don't think she's done it on Fox, but she's she's mm-hmm. announced that she was she, she was she may be one of the more high profile elected, for, you know, f- a person who's run for pol- political office who's actually said that they're going okay. to vote for Joe Biden. You're, 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 a, you're a student of history. Help me out here. Um, obviously, one of the, the main stories is the, the overwhelming Republican support for Donald Trump. We've talked about that endlessly. Yet I cannot remember any historical parallel to the moment that we're in right now, the number of prominent Republicans who have broken with Donald Trump, endorsed a Democrat. I know that that there were Republicans who bailed on Barry Goldwater back in 1964, but I don't remember anything remotely like what we're seeing right now, where you have the, the governor, former Republican governor of Michigan, the former Republican governor of New Jersey, the former Republican governor of Pennsylvania, um, senior Republican members of Congress, uh, you know, people like Carly Fiorina. Uh, this is this really is an unusual political moment, isn't it? Well, just look at, at former Republican presidential candidates. I mean, you know, whether it was John Kasich in 2016 who, or, or, or former John, President Bush. Or, sorry, governor of Ohio. Yeah. Yeah. Former President Bush or Mitt Romney or I mean, the, the list goes on. I mean, it, the fact that you didn't have a single former president or presidential candidate at, at, at speaking at Trump's convention. In fact, Kasich spoke at the at the Democratic convention. I mean, that just says it all about the degree of defections from from within the Republican Party. And then there's a whole lot. Of, I mean, I had Tom Ridge, the, the former uh, DHS secretary yeah. who, uh, you know, former Republican governor of Pennsylvania, elder statesman within the party, Republican Party. He was about a month ago, he came on my podcast and uh, I asked him if he was going to vote for Joe Biden because he, he said he wasn't voting for Trump mm-hmm. in 16, but couldn't vote for Hillary Clinton. And he he wouldn't say he, he still at, the, at that point was uncomfortable saying he would vote for a Democrat. But a couple of weeks later, he actually did come out and write, write an op-ed supporting Joe Biden. So um, 
there, there, there are a lot of other people that are just silent. And, and, and I wouldn't be surprised if you have Republican senators and congressmen who publicly say that they support Trump, but when they go to the ballot, may end up voting for Joe Biden. Yeah, this is something that I, I brought up several times. Um, I, I'm, I'm convinced that there are at least as many silent, uh, shy, shy uh, Biden support voters as there are shy Trump voters given the current environment here. So so who knows? Okay, so what are you watching over the next couple of days? Things are moving so quickly, but we are 27 days into, I um, mean, away from election day. We haven't gotten into the whole disputes about mail-in balloting, uh, which of course is still a tremendous wild card in the Republican attempts. By the way, speaking of another, another thing, it has become baked into Republican ideology that they should be as aggressive as po as possible in suppressing the vote, which may make sense internally, but boy, it's a terrible look. I mean, it's just well, it's if we had a, fun a well functioning democracy, I, there would be a compromise to be had on on voting access. I think so you would you would basically say more voting locations, more 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 ways for people in any given county to to actually vote, and, and if need be, vote a little bit early. But you would also get rid of like two months before the election, yeah. uh, voting early this, this early, right? I mean, there's a I think there's a little bit of a scourge when you're you're voting and you don't even know about the Cunningham scandal or you don't know about the Trump COVID diagnosis. Yeah. You, I, I think you should have a maybe a week or two of early voting on weekends and maybe a week before the election. But I, I actually also, maybe during the pandemic is, is an exception to the rule, but I, I'm one of the few people who, who is a little bit alarmed at two months of, of early voting. Mm -hmm. I, I think that's a little bit anti-democratic as well, because it just encourages people to cast partisan ballots and ignore the developments in, in the most crucial part of a campaign. Yeah, I think, um, I, and, and I, I, I think, I think that maybe that's going to be, well, I don't know. I've, you know what? I'm, more, I'm, I'm, I'm more not... access, more access, but also less. Not you know, reduce the amount of time where you you know. Well, this was something that really frustrated me during the debates over over photo IDs and everything. That that this should not be a partisan issue. That there has got to be some sort of a consensus about protecting the integrity of the ballot box. Uh, while not suppressing votes. Th this should be something that we all agree on, that that we ought to make it as easy to vote legally as possible. Um, and yet uh, we're not anywhere close to being that. Okay, so what else are you looking for this week? What are you watching? Well, the Veepstakes debate, uh, the only one. I mean, that's yeah, Kamala Harris has not been um, front and center. She no. will tonight. I, I, you know, it'll be interesting. To, she has not been on message all the time with, with, with Biden. And I imagine she's going to be more so <laughs> at this nationally televised debate tonight. But she's sort of been the, instead of kind of being the, the rock star and, and being uh, the, the candidate, the running mate giving speeches across the country, she's sort of been micro-targeted to, to certain, you know, liberal groups. Mm -hmm. And she hasn't been sort of the, the big picture candidate that looks like a future presidential candidate, looks like a future president in her own right. Um, so this debate is going to be, you know, I, I, I think that the environment favors Harris and, and the Democratic Party, if only for the plexiglass, you know, um, separators between the two and, and the, the timing in which this is taking place. But, you know, Harris has, has she underwhelmed on the presidential campaign trail. A lot of Democrats thought she was going to be much more front and center in this campaign. Uh, this will be her biggest moment. And I, I'm going to be fascinated to see if she kind of sticks to the Biden bipartisan message or if she tries to maybe rally the base or offer some, hmm. some of her own. Her own, her own, uh, you know, uh, freelancing during this. And, and, of, and of course, the Republicans uh, increasingly want to make this uh, about running against the Harris-Biden ticket. Have you noticed how often um, that pops up? Because, you know, that, of course, is the theme that, okay, you, Joe Biden may not be scary, but 
he's really just the figurehead. The really the person to be scared of is Kamala Harris. Okay, uh, speaking of debates, will there be a, 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 any more presidential debates? Because that seemed to be that debate is just now beginning. Joe Biden suggesting that if uh, Donald Trump still has the coronavirus, there should not be a debate. What do you think? Is there is well, there know, going to be a big, debate? Well, what are the yeah, Charlie, one of the big stories I think we're going to hear about this week is whether Trump knew he had coronavirus at that Tuesday debate oh, with God. Joe Biden. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we don't know. They're not, the White House has not been at all transparent about the timeline in which he was tested, in which he knew that he, he was sick. Maybe he, maybe he wasn't, but there's a lot of mounting evidence that he may have actually had <sighs> coronavirus on that Tuesday night debate. So the Biden campaign has every right to not trust what the Trump team is saying and to require strict you know health health standards for for that event and i think he kind of he hinted at that when he was speaking yesterday um I, I think we'll have at least one more debate but i think i do think that that next debate at least the timing of it may be up in the air because you know you have a president you know literally it was days ago he was in the hospital shedding virus i it's only eight days away till till the um Till the second debate, I'm, I I think Biden has legitimate reasons to be concerned. Yeah, I, I think he does have legitimate reasons to be concerned. And of course, uh, Trump is not necessarily out of the woods yet. Josh Kraschauer from the National Journal, thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. We always enjoy having you on. Thanks. Always a pleasure, Charlie. And thank you for listening to today's Bulwark podcast. I'm Charlie Sykes. We will be back tomorrow and we will do this all over again. Just 27 days to go until Election Day.